looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Thanks for tuning in this week. And this week's guest, we have Mark Pierce from Cloud Peak Law Group. He's actually the founder of Cloud Peak Law Group. He's going to be sitting in with us, talking to us about asset protection, trusts. Um, and he's really based out of Wyoming because of the protection that state offers through asset protection and LLCs. So we hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. If you are interested in getting in on our meetup groups that we have monthly, shoot me over an email at dante at victorycapgroup.com or message me on Instagram at Dante Belmonte. Each month we do have a meetup regarding a different real estate topic um, that we kind of teach on. Then we open up the room for questions and answers. So if you guys are looking to get on that, let me know. Also, as you know, if you're enjoying the episodes right now, we appreciate the support. We'd also love the feedback. Head over to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, or write us a review as it does help out the show, and enjoy the episode. All right, guys, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Today's guest is Mark Pierce. He is the owner and founder of Cloud Peak, and he's with us today on the show. Mark, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? That'd be great. Thank you, Dante. Thank you for having me on. My name is Mark Pierce. I own a law firm by the name of Cloud Peak Law Group. Uh, LLC. We're based primarily out of Sheridan, Wyoming, which is uh, Wyoming has become one of the premier asset protection trust states in the United States. It was also the first jurisdiction to provide for the formation and use of limited liability companies, which have become a predominant holding entity for many real estate assets. We have offices in Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, Florida, and uh, Delaware at the current time. We have engaged in asset protection planning and structuring for 37 years now. We did some offshore trust work over a period of time and then gravitated more towards the onshore trust beginning in about 1997 when Wyoming, South Dakota, Nevada, and a number of other states began updating their uniform trust codes and their limited liability codes to comport with the demands of uh, current commerce. The principal focus of our business is to provide, first of all and foremost, anonymity for your business relationships, and secondly, asset protection, and a third line of defense there is for tax planning. Like I say, we've been doing this for about 37 years. We have a customer service department. We have a cadre of attorneys who are fairly well trained. Uh, We have paralegals, and uh, we have a website. And that website has been developed uh, over about the last five years, six years, We've put well over a million dollars in cash, not effort into it, but a million dollars cash into it. It's safe, it's secure, and it provides a great deal of flexibility to you, both in respect to your planning and your trust work and the access to the information that you need. Awesome. I I also practice as a CPA prior to becoming an attorney with a large uh, accountancy firm which uh, was then part of the big eights, but is now part of the big whatever's left over. <laughs> I think there's four left um, and gained a great deal of tax expertise during that period of time. So from the standpoint of both the 
CPA work and then the legal work, I like to work with accountants and I like to work with other attorneys in providing for their clients and really making sure that from soup to nuts, you get what it is that you're paying for. And more importantly, at the end of the day, there aren't any surprises. It should be a seamless transaction coming down from your attorneys down to your accountants to, to down to your operations. So that's what we endeavor to do and what we've been doing. Wow. Awesome. Mark, that's great. I mean, obviously you have a lot of experience. You have a, knowledge, a lot of knowledge in this space too. So I'm excited for this conversation and I definitely want to you know, dive right into it. I get, I, I host a meetup. I've got the podcast. I'm on social media. I get the question all the time. You know, what should I put multiple properties in LLC? Should I leave my first property in my first name? You know, all the basic questions. I definitely want to go over some of that with you today. So um, you're an attorney and you were a CPA. So that's awesome. You know, the tax side and the legal side. Um, you've definitely got a lot of experience and you're located in Wyoming right now, correct? Yes. Okay. And Wyoming was the first state to recognize an LLC. Talk to us a little bit about that. When was that? Why was that? How did that all play out? Well, the limited liability, limited liability companies came about in the 1970s, 1980s, when they were beginning to be formulated um, by a group of individuals to address the shortcomings of corporations. A corporation could be taxed in one of two ways, a C-corp or an S-corp. And then you had several hundred years of history that are incumbent upon any corporation in the evolution of that corporation and its administration. We felt that that provided a lot of extra baggage, a lot of extra laws that weren't necessary, particularly in respect of small business organizations that are owned by people uh, comprising 25 or fewer individuals. So we tried to put together, and I think that we did put together, a limited liability company that gives you all the operating flexibility that you need to have as a small business person while allowing you a much greater panoply of uh, taxation options. For instance, with an LLC, you can be taxed as a sole proprietorship or a partnership, otherwise called through the pass-through entities, or you can be taxed as an S-corp or a C-corp. So you have a lot more flexibility in putting together your organizational structure and a lot more flexibility in determining how it is that you want to be taxed once you do put your organizational structure in, in place. So the LLC began evolving in the 1980s. Wyoming has stayed on the forefront of the evolution of that. For, for instance, there are a number of states that do not recognize single member LLCs. Wyoming by statute says we recognize single member LLCs. Wyoming also allows you as a sole remedy, as a creditor against an individual who has a membership interest in the LLC, a charging order. In Wyoming, that charging order protection says that you cannot attach that charging order, but if and when there are any distributions that come out of that LLC at any time, then the creditor can take those distributions. So essentially what we're allowed to do is that we say, great, well, we're going to have distributions, but we're not actually going to distribute cash to you. So we'll send you a K-1, you can pay the tax on the distribution, but you're not going to have the cash out of the LLC to pay that distribution. We could, or to pay that tax on that distribution. So that squeezes a creditor and allows you some additional um, negotiating leverage with that individual or that uh, entity. Second thing we do is we allow disproportionate or unequal allocations to be made to partners as well. For instance, if you and I were in a partnership 50-50 and I had a judgment against me, you could allocate the, profit, the, the profits to you in one year and no profits to me. And you could do that for a series of years. Of course, you would have to pay the tax and eventually you would have to make that up. But while you are doing that, that creditor is getting more and more uh, difficult to deal with, but doesn't have any legal remedies 
to deal with that unequal allocation. So Wyoming has a lot of mechanisms that we put in place over the, uh, over the years that allow us to have a different approach to the negotiation of difficulties that people run into during the course of their lives. Wow. Okay. Well, let, let's look at the syndication side of things a little bit, because a lot of people that listen to the show are syndicators are looking to learn more about it. And we can talk about like the mom and pa buy and hold investors as well. So for example, our uh, syndication holding company will say is Victory Capital Group. And we do have our entity through Wyoming. Um, you constantly get the debate of, and we hear it a lot, especially when we started Delaware versus Nevada versus Wyoming. Do you kind of want to break that down real quick? Why some people talk about those three states and what protection they get, but why Wyoming would probably be the most uh, beneficial one? Yeah, um, you know, Delaware has a fairly significant state tax when it comes to renewing your LLC every year based on the assets you employ within that LLC. Uh, Delaware does a significant number higher of corporations than it does LLC. It's been in the corporation business for 100 years. They have excellent corporate laws. They have excellent corporate governance laws. They are a good state when you come into public, uh, publicly held entities. They have a chancery court that's one of the top courts in the United States. Uh, Wyoming does not measure up to that when it comes down to corporations. When it comes to LLCs, Delaware is not quite as robust in its laws as Wyoming is for the reasons that I just stated, you know, the unequal allocations, the charging order protection, single member LLCs, those sorts of things. They don't allow for that sort of flexibility. On the corporate side of things, Wyoming does have a very flexible corporate statute as well, but it's not as well-defined as Delaware would be, and it's not does not have the reputation that Delaware would have. I think on the, the, the side with Nevada, Nevada has I think laws that are equal to uh, Wyoming over over most of the, the LLC structure that it has. Not all of it. Like I said, we have a great deal more flexibility in allocations, charging order protection. But to maintain an LLC in Nevada is a bit more expensive than it is going to be in Wyoming. But I think the biggest biggest difference is the courts in Wyoming. For instance, if you were to have a creditor of a member who had a charging order against that member's LLC interest. And there were issues that had arisen within the LLC and that creditor did not like the way in which allocations and whatnot were going on within the LLC. That creditor could come to Wyoming and sue the LLC in an attempt to force that liquidation of that LLC or to gain knowledge as to who the other members might be. Well, a court in Wyoming is not gonna allow that, 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 uh, that suit to stand. In addition, however, they're not going to allow that LLC to disclose who the other members are because it's none of that creditor's business. They're on a fishing trip and the court simply isn't going to allow that to, ha to happen. So we have what we call cloaking mechanism, if you ever follow Star Trek, but a cloaking mechanism, <laughs> that information uh, private. And, you know, we're, we're kind of an unusual state. We actually believe that your business matters should be your private and personal matters. And as a result, our courts reflect that. And I do not think that the courts in other states reflected as well as ours do. Awesome. And earlier on, you mentioned something about a single member LLC. So let's talk about that real quick in Wyoming, what a single member LLC means versus a majority of the other states when they have an entity with an LLC. Right. What happens is that if you have a single member LLC, for instance, in Florida, a court could just set the efficacy of that structure aside enforce the liquidation of that LLC in favor of a creditor of a single member. So wow. in Wyoming, 
you can't do that. They, they recognize the legal efficacy of those organizations. So if you have a holding company that has a number of operating LLCs underneath it, that holding company generally would own 100% of each one of those LLCs. Well, in Wyoming, the, that ownership would have legal efficacy. Whereas in Florida, that ownership would not have legal efficacy. So a creditor of the holding company could force a liquidation or an attachment against one of the subsidiary LLCs. Well, and so, yeah. And if you had a family or a family office that owned a, a number of these LLCs in that format, uh, one bad apple within the family could result in the dissolution of all the businesses that family owns. Okay. And other benefits to having an entity in Wyoming versus other states? Well, like I say, the court system is one of the best things. You simply can't get to Wyoming unless you're going to Wyoming. Right. I had a I had a client of mine who came out from Atlanta. It took him two days to get out here and two days to get back. He ended up sleeping on the floor of the Minneapolis airport. <laughs> and when he got here and opened the bank accounts and did his business, he says, now I see what you're talking about. And it was 20 below zero the whole time he was here. So it's just a difficult place to do litigation. It's a difficult place to be. Our laws gravitate against creditors and in favor of these LLCs and the efficacy of the LLCs. It's a, it's a jurisdiction here. Uh, the state of Wyoming, this jurisdiction is really pushing hard to get that business in through the door. And I think that we have one of the best trust codes in the United States as well. Like Sam Western writing for The Economist magazine said, Wyoming, it's the new onshore offshore trust jurisdiction. So you have all the viability of a U.S. trust jurisdiction with many of the protections that you're going to find in an offshore trust without the negative publicity of being associated with an offshore trust. Okay. Yeah. And something that we do for our syndications is we have our holding company up top and each asset we own is individually owned in its own entity. Um, a lot of people that do, you know, mom and pa, that are small buy and hold multifamilies. Sometimes they own 10 properties in one entity. Why is it that individuals like us hold uh, properties in separate entities versus another individual that might hold a pool of properties in one entity? Yeah. Well, that's the question, isn't it? At the end of the day, you want to be able to say, okay, look, what gives you the best protection? Ultimately, the best protection is to have great insurance because most of the time when you get sued, an attorney is going to sue for the policy limits, but not always. But let's say that you had three properties each worth $500,000. One is owned outright. So you have 500,000 equity. The, equ- the other one's owned 50-50. So you have 250 in equity. And one you just bought using the equity from the other two has no equity. So you have a catastrophic event within the, the property that has no equity and you have a spillover. So at that point, you have unsatisfied legal obligations. The creditors from that catastrophic event could attach the unit that has $500,000 worth of equity, sell it and use it to pay off the debt that's outstanding against the uh, apartment complex or whatever it is, the asset that has no equity in it. So that's why you want to say, look, if I've got an LLC and I have three properties that have no equity in it, if if I need to, if I feel comfortable, I can put all three of those into one entity because there's no spillover. But if I have a unit that's worth has five hundred thousand equity, I don't want that equity to spill over and satisfy obligations of an of an entity or of a property that has no equity in it. Now, one of the unique features to Wyoming, and it's something that's just evolving now, is that we have what we call series LLCs. 
So you have one LLC at the top that operates like a holding company that has nothing in it. And you form series underneath that LLC. And each one of those series holds a separate property. But you still have one consolidated financial statement, one consolidated filing, one consolidated LLC that you register with the state of Wyoming. And that was something that was put together primarily to provide for mutual funds, but it also works very well for real estate. Awesome. Okay. And what about for a management company? So an episode I was listening to you that you were on that with, um, you're talking about syndications and how you should also have a management entity. Talk to us a little bit about that and where that becomes beneficial. Um, my feeling is that with the family office or a management company, a separate management company, what it allows you to do is that once you get to a certain size, it, it bifurcates the ownership from the management. So one of the things that you face in a family business is how do you get good people in to work for you? And if you have that management office off to the side, you can, you can uh, reside all of the investment structures, all the operating structure within that management company. So you take the passive family investors away from the management of the, the management of the apartment buildings or whatever it is that you have. So you can attract or retain really good people off to the side and they will manage those properties separately. You can also isolate liability that way so that you would have ownership within an LLC. You would have a management company that leases that and then subleases off of that lease to be able to bifurcate that liability away from the LLC. And the final thing is, is that if you have a management company, you'll generally find that you can have pension funds, health insurance programs, that that are much more deductible coming out of a family office than they would be from a standalone holding company. So it's okay. asset protection. It's the ability to attract and retain good people and better tax benefits. What are some tips to uh, you could tell investors that will help them protect their assets better? What can they do to be proactive and make sure that their liability is limited? I, you know, getting getting each one of those properties into separate LLCs and having adequate insurance is one of the best ways. Those, those are the two best ways that you can have as a small investor once you get going. Um, an additional way to go is that you can do equity stripping. So when you have a holding company that owns LLCs underneath it, those LLCs eventually get uh, equity in, in them as they pay down the debt and as rents come up, you know how the numbers flip. Right. And over a period of time, you get that kind of stranded equity in there. So there's a couple of different ways that a holding company can invest in that, that uh, subsidiary company. You can make just a complete equity investment, or you can make a equity investment and a combination of debt as well. So that when the holding company has debt against that the operating subsidiary, that debt is repaid over a period of time through a promissory note that's secured by UCC ones and mortgages. So it reduces the equity that's outstanding in that property. And you can also engage in something called equity stripping so that you strip the equity out of that unit from time to time using a combination of investments, debt, and equity that essentially leaves that subsidiary LLC looking as though it's holding nothing. So if you have a catastrophic event, an attorney comes along, he sees that or she sees the LLC that had the catastrophic event has no equity in it. Even though you've held the equity in that 15, 20 years, you've moved the equity up into the holding company or up into the asset protection trust to keep it one or two steps away from any potential creditor. 
So let me break that down real quick, because that's probably a, a new topic to a lot of people. So let's say a property has 30% equity, 70% debt from the original lender on the property. Can you take a portion, if not all of that 30% and maybe do a private loan to another entity such as the holding company to take away the equity? Is that really what you're saying? Well, what I would do is I would strip the equity out of that subsidiary LLC to begin with through a dividend. And then I would take it and I would reinvest that and then strip it away a second at a time, but leave a UCC one and a mortgage in place. So it looks as though you're hundred percent finance. And then awesome. I would take out of the holding company, I would take that money and start a new business venture using a combination of debt and equity. And I'm sure that you get this question a lot. How much equity do I need to put into an LLC so that's not undercapitalized? Right. And a typical go by is three months worth of operating capital if you have no revenues whatsoever in that LLC. So you would take all the operating expenses, including the debt service of that LLC, multiply it by three, leave that amount in there. That's your equity. Anything over that would be debt. Okay. That makes sense. And you also mentioned having adequate insurance coverage on the properties. So let's say we do have each individual uh, property as an apartment complex. Do you suggest uh, doing things like putting an individual umbrella policy on each property as well to give you additional protection? Yes. Okay. Awesome. Absolutely. Uh, I, you know, attorneys are lazy. <laughs> you know, <they're> kind of, <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're going to get the policy limits or something approaching the policy limits at some point in time. To go over those policy limits requires you to litigate not just against the insurance company, but the individual holders as well. And at that point, it gets to be a lot of work and whether or not you collect anything, a little conjectural. So, you know, the ultimate line of defense is a good insurance policy. Awesome. I love that. And then from your CPA slash accountant side of things, um, what tax deduction tips can you give investors as well? So each year they're paying less and less in taxes, you know, things aside from the regular depreciation or cost segregation, any other uh, individual tips you have? Absolutely. And this goes right back to that family office. You can put a pension fund in place right there so that you can stack those pension funds. And when you get to be 15 or older, you can really stuff a lot of money into the pension funds. Uh, the second thing that I like to recommend that very few people are taking into consideration are the, uh, are the insurance companies that you can set up, uh, your own insurance companies. And there's a wonderful case law that's out there. The Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church originally came up with these ideas are called captive insurance companies, and they got the original approval for them. Well, what they were originally approved for and where they are now are completely different. But for instance, there was a dentist in San Francisco who had a number of facilities with a holding company. And this dentist wanted to insure against the possibility of terrorist attacks in San Francisco. And you kind of think of, well, you know, what's the probability of that? Well, probably a lot lower before 9-11. So now, now you look at that and say, okay. So you come up with some sort of methodology to uh, value what that risk is. And then you form your own captive insurance company so that the subsidiaries are paying into that captive to provide year to year insurance as, as a reserve against their operating uh, assets and against their operating cash flows. So that captive insurance company then, that's deductible to each one of those insurance. The captive insurance company then takes that money in, but that's a loan loss reserve. So that's not income. So you're able to accrue a great deal of assets in that captive insurance company, which is then in turn held by the family. Well, at some point in time, presumably, I've not seen it reached by anybody yet, at some point in time, you do have uh, income that comes off those captives. And there's a, a good company that puts these into place. And I'm 
their name escapes me right now. You can do your own captive once you get big enough, or you can have a pooled risk of captives with other business owners. And that's one of the best ways to strip the profits out of these and put them into loan reserves for, a capital, for, for an insurance company, which you can choose to recognize at lower income rates for your family at some time in the future. Wow. Okay. I'll have to look into that and do a little bit more research. I wasn't really aware of that. So that's awesome. Oh, it's and- great. I've seen the, the numbers on this stuff and uh, we'll head in that direction ourselves at some point. There you go. Awesome. And let's talk a little bit about your company. So at, at Cloud Peak, we talked about what you guys do, but let's say someone is starting to syndicate and they do want to send, to, send excuse me, set up an initial entity for protection for their business. What do you guys offer for that? What kind of package do you have? Yeah, you know, we can do a holding company with LLC interest underneath that. And then you can syndicate out the holding company. You can either make that into an LLC or a C Corp, depending upon what people feel more comfortable with over a period of time. But I will tell you, I think investors are becoming much more comfortable with LLC membership interest holdings and also the flexibility in the tax. You know, we can offer that. And then for the individual business owner, at some point in time, you look up and say, you know, what if a catastrophe happens within the businesses I have? Do I have some money set aside so I can get a stake to get back into the game or I'm just completely exposed? And people, I think particularly in the professions, doctors in particular, are are exposed. And I think a lot of real estate owners are exposed. So for instance, like one doctor came in and he had a number of uh, interests in real estate ventures in Southern California, but he just held it personally. So the idea is that, you know, as this income goes through, you want to funnel it out into an asset protection trust. You do that, then you got a double, double, triple envelope of protection there. That asset protection trust, you can't break through that. Hmm. So at the end of the day, these people say, okay, I strip it off, I strip it off, I strip off the equity in this, and then I make other investments on the other side of this that are, you know, low low risk investments, like investing in the stock market, that sort of thing. You might lose your investment, but they're not going to come after you for any deficiencies because there aren't going to be any. So it allows you to strip off of uh, existing uh, performing assets and get a pool of money so that if there's a catastrophe, you've always got a fallback position. Oh, very interesting. Awesome. Okay. Well, Mark, is there anything else before we head off the show here that you wanted to touch on today that we didn't really hit on? I think we hit on a lot of really good areas um, of, you know, attorney-wise and CPA-wise? <laughs> well, I, you know, I just had some interesting phone calls with people who got wrapped up in C-corporations. And I think that the reason that they originally put themselves into C-corps is you've got a 21% max tax. The problem is going to be on that C-corporation is that at some point in time, you get a level of retained earnings that you have to get rid of somehow. Right. And there's no way to get rid of it. It's very difficult to get rid of that in a tax-effective manner without double taxation. That runs you up to about 58%, 59%. Well, that's a heck of a price to pay for having a yeah, little bit. Yeah, that's crazy. It is. And there's a wonderful site on the Wharton School of Business. There's a wonderful site that goes over when it is that you should do a C-Corp. And I would advocate for a lot of people, get your tax accountant in there and go over it, see if it makes sense to you before you make that C-Corp election. If you do make that C-Corp election and then you find out, Gee, you know, the do-it-yourself program you went through didn't work out very well for me. And now I've got a million dollars of retained earnings out there that I'd like to use. But, you know, and one of the one of the guys I heard said, yeah, well, you can lend that out. Well, yeah, but at some point in time, you know, after about five years and the loans marginally repaid, the IRS said, that's not a loan. 
that's a dividend. And then they tax right. the whole thing at the 37% rate. So that now you're 50 at 59%. So, you know, there's, I've not seen a lot of good, good ways in which to get rid of that other than the captive insurance program may well be the way to do it. But again, through the captive, you're deferring it, but you're deferring it at, lo at lower rates. It's the idea at the end of the day. Yeah. So that, that was one of the ways in which you could break out of that C corp that I've not seen explained to a lot of people. Yeah, no, that's very good. I like it. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. If someone wanted to get in contact with you or do some work with you, uh, how can they get a hold of you? How can they reach out to you? Uh, we have a website, wyomingllcattorney.com, and you can book an appointment there, or you can call one of the customer service representatives, or you can book an appointment with me. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks again for so much coming on the show, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, I look forward to it. Talk to you, man. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.